When a hurricane brings gale force winds, crushing waves, and high water to the Hatteras coast, everything changes. The waves, whipped by hard wind and rain, pour in one after another, seconds apart, banging against the sand dunes, creating inlets where there were none, gouging the ocean bottom, and creating chaos among all living things. The last place you would want to be in a hurricane is in a ship being driven mercilessly toward the shallow coastline by hurricane force winds, or on a life-saving crew whose job it is to rescue the passengers of that ship as they cling to the wreckage which is being hammered by 15-foot waves in closing darkness. For the life-saving crew, once the waves reach a certain height and intensity, the option of using any kind of wooden craft powered by two oarsmen is no longer an option. To expect any human being to swim 200 yards through the strong currents and high waves of a hurricane to save the passengers of a sinking ship would today be considered a death wish. But in the years between 1860 and 1950, it was a job. A job whose unofficial motto was, you have to go out there, you don't have to come back. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, and a true story of heroism from a place full of history and legends, the Outer Banks of North Carolina. I have mentioned in previous episodes that the Outer Banks is one of my family's favorite places to get away to, mainly because you can four-wheel drive the beaches, the fishing is great, and if you get to your favorite beach early enough, you can look north and south as far as you can see along the wide sand beach and not see another person in sight. I've said it before, but it bears repeating. It's God's country for beach people. The Outer Banks is a 200-mile-long stretch of barrier islands off the coast of North Carolina that protect the mainland from the Atlantic. And because these barrier islands run pretty much northeast to southwest along the east coast of the U.S., they are a prime target for hurricanes moving northward from Florida or westward from Bermuda toward the southeast U.S. The ever-shifting shoals off this coast, called the Diamond Shoals, combined with storms, have made the Outer Banks in past years a treacherous place for sailing vessels ever since the 16th century, and the wrecks of over 600 ships, according to records kept since 1526, lie mostly buried in the sands within a few hundred yards of the beach. There are so many stories from this area of the U.S. that I could do a 1001 show just based on Outer Banks history. From the Wright brothers' first flight in 1903, to the lost colony at Roanoke Island, to Blackbeard's last days at Ocracoke Island, to Nags Head, the coastal town that takes its name from land-based pirates who, according to legend, would tie lanterns to their horses' necks and walk them along the beach, knowing that when ships saw the gently bobbing lights, they would assume they were coming from another ship, a sign that clear water lay closer to shore, an error in judgment that could cost them their ship, its cargo, and their lives. 
The Outer Banks is known for its shipwrecks and hauntings and Civil War fortifications. The sinking of the ironclad USS Monitor, which foundered and sank in a storm December 31, 1862. The wild ponies that survived Spanish wrecks and found a home on the islands. The discovery of Blackbeard's ship Queen Anne's Revenge. The story of the tallest lighthouse in the U.S., the Hatteras Lighthouse. The story of the little-known ghost town of Wash Woods, just north of the North Carolina border, in Falls Cape State Park, Virginia, miles below the resort city of Virginia Beach, but still within its city boundaries, where its southernmost stretch of beach homes, called Sandbridge, ends at a park and pier, and where Falls Cape State Park begins, where the remains of a graveyard and a chapel made by survivors of a shipwreck from the lumber of their wreck still remains today. And the subject of this story, the many daring rescues made by the men who ran the life-saving stations that dotted the coastline of the Outer Banks until the late 1940s. The subject of today's episode, the Pea Island Life-Saving Station, was a life-saving station on Pea Island on the Outer Banks of North Carolina. You'll pass it about 10 miles south of Nags Head as you head south on Route 12 toward Hatteras and Ocracoke. Because of the shifting nature of the barrier island system, of which Pea Island is a part, and the way in which inlets open and close over time, Pea Island, in the course of history, has gained and lost its island status depending upon the fierceness of certain hurricanes, which can have the effect of closing the inlets to the sound with sand or opening them up. That is the best testament you can get to the fact that storms hit this area with a ferocity. And the last place you want to be in one of those storms is on a ship off the coast of North Carolina, at least in those days, when ships had no radar to warn them of approaching storms and no way to tell how close to the coast they were being driven, which is exactly why the U.S. Congress, once it was formed, began authorizing the construction of manned lighthouses along the coast to at least give ships a chance to see those bright lighthouse lights through the storm so they would know that land was close. This story came about as a result of the hard work of two university students, and the story is told as follows. In 1993, Commander Steve Rochon, U.S. Coast Guard, received a call from two graduate students. David Zobi of Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia, and David Wright of the University of Massachusetts in Boston. They had been working on a research project on Richard Etheridge and the Pea Island Life Saving Station, and asked for Rochon's assistance. After exhaustive research, the two students, one white, the other black, had confirmed that the Pea Island crew did not get recognized for any of their many daring rescues during its years of service, from 1880 to 1947. It was at that moment that the three decided to go for the gold, with Wright and Zobi doing the research and Rochon preparing the recommendation. Two years into their laborious efforts, Rochon received a call from the Chief of Medals and Awards Branch at Headquarters, Coast Guard. He was told that 14-year-old Kate Burkhart from Washington, North Carolina, had written Senator Jesse Helms of North Carolina, and in her letter she had asked the senator to write the Coast Guard and tell them that the Pea Island Lifesavers deserved the gold life-saving 21 medal for the E.S. Newman rescue. Burkhart, who had become interested in Pea Island as part of a school research project, also wrote a few other members of Congress 
and the President of the United States, at that time, President Clinton. Then President Clinton wrote the Commandant of the Coast Guard, focusing greater attention on the rescue. Rochon, sensing that the timing was right, finalized and forwarded the 69-page recommendation to the Medals and Awards panel. And we'll bring you the results of that recommendation at the end of this episode. Now, our story. On October 11, 1896, a major hurricane struck the coast of North Carolina. Off the coast, the three-masted schooner E.S. Newman, bound from Providence, Rhode Island, to Norfolk, and captained by S.A. Gardner, with his wife, his three-year-old child, and a six-man crew aboard, having been driven far off course by hurricane winds, was careening toward land, her sails being ripped away in an effort to beach her rather than be destroyed, and sunk offshore. At the Pea Island, North Carolina Life-Saving Station, Keeper Richard Etheridge had discontinued the routine beach patrols in an effort to shore up the station against the threat that the oncoming hurricane was posing, while surfman Theodore Meekins continued to watch from the upper deck through the approaching darkness for any signs of distress out in the ocean. The ocean was whipped up mightily, with waves breaking in fast succession, far out on the sandbar as well as on the beach, with high water reaching through cuts in the dunes to pull on the lowland beyond. These outer banks were the first defense for the mainland, and it was this 200-mile-long strip of islands that always took all the hammering, serving as a graveyard for hundreds of storm-broken ships and much of their crews. The life-saving stations, established by an act of Congress, were the last hope for would-be victims of the ocean's wrath. Suddenly, Meekin spotted what he thought was a distress signal out beyond the storm-tossed waves, and fired a series of Coston flares to signal that they had seen the ship's flares. The Coston flare was an ingenious pyrotechnic device that served as a flare gun, which used different combinations of red, white, and green to communicate signals when fired high in the air, signals that were visible for long distances. A young widower named Martha Coston whose husband had been an engineer-inventor, took a rough sketch of his idea and developed it into a communication device which was used by the Union troops during the Civil War, as well as ships and life-saving stations. In war, armies could signal different messages such as attack coming from the left or right, or cover retreat using gunboats. It all depended on the sequence of colors that they used while ships could use the flares to signal distress, and life-saving stations could acknowledge that signal and say that help was on the way. Martha Coston sold that patent for the Coston flare to the U.S. Navy for $20,000, and Coston Manufacturing continued successfully in business until the 1970s. As soon as he saw the flare from the ship, Surfman Meekins ran to alert the officer in command, Richard Etheridge, and they both watched for a return signal. Both strained to look through the storm, and then they saw an answering distress flare to the south. It was faint, but it was there. Etheridge then sent up a combination of colors that indicated that help was on the way, and then readied his crew for a rescue attempt. Everything had to go down exactly right. The slightest error could not and would not be tolerated. As the crew hitched themselves to the equipment cart and their mule to the surf boat, and headed south on the only available paths they could find that weren't already overcome with high water. These were the thoughts that no doubt were racing 
through Etheridge's mind. He and his crew were under intense scrutiny, the former crew having been fired for failing their duty. Another ship, the M.E. Henderson, had wrecked in a fierce storm the past fall, and the crew of that ship had tried to swim to shore in the high waves, with four crewmen drowning in the surf trying to make land, and three reaching the shoreline alive. Those three stumbled upon the Pea Island Life Station, half alive, half dead with exhaustion, to find its occupants all asleep in their bunks. As you can imagine, all hell broke loose when the story reached the Coast Guard Commandant. A report had been written, and the entire crew, which was a mixture of whites and blacks with a white commander, was fired. Richard Etheridge, their replacement, was born the son of a slave on the Outer Banks and knew the waters well, having been put to work fishing and clamming all his life. His owner had been kind enough to teach him to read and write and work with numbers, and Etheridge had learned well. When the Civil War broke out and slaves were given their freedom, he joined the Union Army, fighting at Newmarket and serving at Point Lookout, Maryland, until his unit was merged into the 10th U.S. Cavalry and then sent out west to fight Comanches at a post on the Brazos River in Texas, where he worked his way up the command ladder. The 10th Cavalry Troopers were called Buffalo Soldiers by the Indians who fought them, and both hated and respected them. In 1866, Etheridge was reassigned to his home territory, the Outer Banks of North Carolina, as the officer in charge of the Pea Island Life Saving Station, and given an all-black crew. This was the first time a black man had been given a command position, and the first time that an all-black crew had been utilized. He was recommended to the position because of his excellent record and reputation as a leader. Etheridge was a no-nonsense commander who had zero tolerance for mistakes. He also believed in drill. And as he and his men and equipment raced south to find that ship, all those drills and training were working their way through his mind. A Lifesaver's Week began on Monday with training in the beach apparatus drill. This drill prepared the surfmen to rescue shipwreck victims close to shore using the breeches buoy, which was a well-stitched seat, like a seat in a pair of breeches, through which the survivor would put their legs so they could be pulled toward shore. Lines would be fired from a cannon called a Lyle gun to the ship and secured by the crew on that ship based upon the instructions printed on the tally board. I'll explain these a little more as we go forward. Then the breeches buoy would be sent out and the passengers one by one would be transported to the shore. The drill had to be done in five minutes or less. Any crewman who was found to be delaying the drill's execution could be fired on the spot. Sumner Kimball, who had been appointed to run the service nationally and was responsible for these upgrades, claimed he had seen a drill done in two and a half minutes and occasionally they do reenactments down on the Outer Banks, and it's very interesting to watch. Tuesday was devoted to boat practice, including the riding of surf boats. On Wednesday, the crew practiced signal flag techniques, and then on Thursday, they repeated the beach apparatus drill. On Friday, the crew could be found practicing first aid and rescue breathing techniques. Everyone pitched in to clean the station and quarters on Saturday. Sunday, although they kept watch, was a day off. In addition to practicing daily drills, each surfman walked a four-hour beach patrol in the evening. During this time, they kept a watchful eye on the ocean, looking and listening for sounds or signs of a ship in distress. 
In other areas, beach checks were exchanged between the surfmen of neighboring stations to verify that the patrols were being completed. However, the three stations on Core Banks, one of which was Pea Island, were too far apart to use this method. Watchmen's clocks were used instead. Posts marked the end of the patrol area. Clocks were installed on these posts along with a key for the clock. Patrolling surfmen would insert the key into the clock and the patrol would be recorded. Every man on Etheridge's crew was trained on every piece of life-saving equipment until they could deploy it blindfolded. Their physical strength had to be kept superb as well, as anyone who has fought to tread water in ocean currents knows full well. Few can imagine what it takes to wade into a hurricane-driven sea and swim out 100 to 300 yards, treading water all the way, carrying equipment while attached to a heavy rope through 10-foot waves. If his men failed here, it meant more than losing a job. It meant their pride. The gist of that before-mentioned motto, you have to go out there. You don't have to come back. Arriving on the scene, they spotted the wreck out on the bar, being hammered by high waves and wind. It was now about 7 p.m. in the evening, and total darkness was fast approaching, the sun having already set. Huge waves were washing ashore. The waves were so high that they could not use the surfboat. The next option would be to use a breeches buoy. Etheridge's crew had trained constantly on the deployment of the breeches buoy. In that training, a tower was set up to simulate the crow's nest of a sinking ship. At another point, anywhere up to 300 yards away, another lower tower, like a tripod, is sunk into the beach. A hawser line, made of heavy rope or cable, the kind used to moor ships on a dock, is run through a block and tackle system. Then the Lyle gun, a short cannon invented by MIT and West Point graduate David Lyle, which is designed to fire a leaden missile to which a coiled line is attached, is removed from the surf cart and directed toward the target. The line is fired over the target and pulled taut while the ship's crew attaches it to the topmost section of the ship. The surf men are trained to use arm signals, as the sound of hurricane-force winds and crashing waves makes voice communication almost impossible. A chair is attached beneath the pulley and pulled by a whip line which accompanies the hawser. It is this chair which enables the ship's passengers and crew to be carried above the waves from the ship to the shore. Now, on the beach, Etheridge, to his dismay, realized that due to the sogginess of the beach, and the height of the water on the beach, he would not be able to deploy the Lyle gun, and the anchor for the breach's buoy line could not be placed in the sand. Now his two best options, the surf boat and the breach's buoy, were no longer available to him, and time had to be running out on the ship, which was anchored to the sandbar and taking the full force of hurricane waves. Etheridge asked for volunteers to swim out to the wreck, and they would be carrying a line which needed to be thrown up to the ship's deck by those surfmen, who would be treading water, no doubt exhausted, attempting to throw a wet, coiled line from their position below the ship using a weighted stick, which was called a heaving stick. Consider the difficulty of doing this when you don't have a foothold and you're treading water. Meekins, the man who had first spotted the ship's distress signal, and who was known to be the best swimmer in the group, had volunteered, entered the water, passed out of sight beyond the waves, and after what seemed like an eternity, 
reached the ship. The captain and crew were amazed that anyone could have reached them under these conditions, and having secured the line to the ship, sent the captain's three-year-old son down first to the surfman as his mother watched in helpless terror as the young boy passed over the waves which were crashing against the weakening ship and the roar of the hurricane. Somehow, not having the advantage of a breech's buoy to carry the survivors, the surfmen swam out and back in in teams and carried the survivors, one by one, successfully back to the beach, taking turns to replace their exhausted fellow crewmen in the effort. Nine times they waded into the storm-driven surf, and nine times they made it to the Newman and then returned with waterlogged but living passengers and crew. At no time during this heroic effort was there a safe moment for any of those crewmen out there in that water. The surfmen on the beach, unable to sink any kind of anchor into the now waist-deep beach, acted as human anchors for that line. After receiving hard tugs signaling readiness to return, they were also bracing and pulling three hopefully live bodies back through the waves with each life-saving effort. To say this work, which took hours, was exhausting is an understatement. In the days and weeks that passed, the survivors recovered and thanked all the men in the crew profusely, writing glowing recommendations of the courage and preparedness in the face of what seemed like insurmountable odds. The captain even came across the nameplate of the ship at one point in the surf after the ship had broken up and gifted it to the men, who ended up awarding it to surfman Meekins, who had first spotted the flare from the E.S. Newman and, according to legend, took part in each of the nine rescue trips. Meekins proudly displayed it over the door of his barn at his home on Roanoke Island for the remainder of his life. Having served as a Buffalo soldier in the 10th U.S. Cavalry, Etheridge was well-traveled, disciplined, accustomed to hard living, and by any account, a man's man who left his mark on history. It's no doubt that the irony wasn't lost to him and his crew when, after risking their lives in high waves and gale winds to save sailors and ship passengers hundreds of yards out from the shore, many of whom were no doubt praying for the hand of God to reach down to rescue them, that that hand of mercy sent by God to save them was the hand of a black man. At the beginning of this story, we touched briefly upon Richard Etheridge's background, and now is as good a time as any to share it. He was born a slave on January 16, 1842, the property of John B. Etheridge on the Outer Banks of North Carolina. Large plantations didn't exist on the Outer Banks. African Americans were relatively few and slavery limited. During his early life, Richard Etheridge, like most Outer Bankers, learned to work the sea, fishing, piloting boats, and combing the beach for the refuse of wrecks. Even though it was illegal to do so, his master also taught him to read and write. After the fighting began between the states in April of 1861, the Outer Banks was the site of one of the first northern invasions, more accurately called an occupation, since little or no defense was offered. In February 1862, General Ambrose Burnside, the Union commander, employed black labor to build fortifications for his armies, and the island soon became a refugee camp for fugitive slaves. The Union eventually realized the potential that the active recruitment of Southern blacks offered their forces, not only by bolstering the Union ranks, but by simultaneously diminishing the opposition's labor supply. Black troops began being enlisted by the summer of 1863, and Richard Etheridge joined on August 28th of that year. 
The 36th United States Color Troop, in which Etheridge enlisted, spent much of its first year of active duty, like most of the other black units in the Union Army, playing secondary roles. After limited anti-guerrilla actions in North Carolina, the soldiers of the 36th served as guards at the prisoner of war camp at Point Lookout, Maryland, occasionally raiding into neighboring Virginia for contraband goods, supplies, horses, cattle, or slaves. Necessity eventually allowed the 36th to play a more prominent role in the fight for freedom and union. The 36th distinguished itself during the September 1864 Battle of Newmarket Heights, Virginia. During the fighting, the Union forces overran Lee's strong position and won an important victory on the road to taking the Confederate capital at Richmond. Etheridge was promoted to sergeant two days after that battle. While fighting on the front to end slavery, Etheridge was also active in the struggle behind the Union lines to end the mistreatment of blacks. During his duty in Virginia in 1865, he and William Benson drafted the following letter to General Oliver O. Howard, the commissioner of the Freedmen's Bureau, protesting the mistreatment that blacks on Roanoke Island were suffering at the hands of the occupying army. He wrote, The white soldiers break into our houses, act as they please, steal our chickens, rob our gardens, and if anyone defends themselves against them, they're taken to the guardhouse for it. So our families have no protection when Mr. Streeter is here to protect them and will not do it. Etheridge and Benson's letter was not merely a cry of grievance, was also a call for action. He finished the letter, General, we the soldiers of the 36th U.S. Company troops having families at Roanoke Island humbly petition you to favor us by removing Mr. Streeter, the present assistant superintendent at Roanoke Island, under Captain James. Etheridge signed the letter on behalf of humanity. At the war's close, Etheridge, now a regimental sergeant, and the black troops of the Army of the James were regrouped into the 9th and 10th Cavalry and sent to Texas. These units would become known, previously mentioned, as the Buffalo Soldiers. Instances of abuse against black soldiers were rife in the period immediately following the fighting between the states. The men were due 10 months back pay, had had their rations cut in half, and were unruly over the continued reports of mistreatment that were coming from their families back home. In December of 1866, Etheridge left the service at Brazos, Santiago, Texas. He returned to the Outer Banks, where he married. Etheridge made his living fishing and serving in the newly formed life-saving service, first at Oregon Inlet in 1875, and then at Bodie Island. In the early years, nepotism and political cronyism tainted many life-saving service appointments. A series of highly publicized maritime disasters off the North Carolina coast appeared to be leading to the annexation of the life-saving service into the Navy. In two months, 188 lives and more than half a million dollars in property was lost off the Outer Banks, often within sight of and with little or inexpert assistance from the lifesavers on shore. The New York World reported, It begins to be painfully clear that the terrible loss of human life on the North Carolina coast must be attributed directly to the inefficiency of the life-saving service. In 1879, the commander of the Pea Island Station, called a keeper, was a white man, and he had a crew of both white and black men. A rescue effort in November 1879, which we had mentioned, 
was bungled, and the keeper and some of the crew were held responsible. The Revenue Cutter Service investigated the situation, fired the white keeper, and appointed in his place Richard Etheridge, known to be one of the best surfmen on the North Carolina coast, to serve as keeper. It is said in closed circles that the fired keeper was responsible for burning down the Pea Island life-saving facility twice in a period of one year, out of revenge for losing his job. And one can also surmise that the added perceived insult of being replaced by a black man in those days may have been a second motive. We will never know, because the investigation was dropped. In order to address the issue of inefficiency in the service, the best lifesavers would need to be put in charge of stations. Etheridge, one of only eight African Americans in the entire life-saving service, was promoted from the lowest-ranking surfman at neighboring Bodie Island Station to take over the incompetently-run station at Pea Island. The life-saving station inspector, First Lieutenant Charles F. Shoemaker, despite warnings from locals, recommended Etheridge to the position, writing, Etheridge is 38 years of age, of strong, robust physique, intelligent, and able to read and write sufficiently well to keep the journal of a station. He is one of the best surfmen on this part of the North Carolina coast. The report concluded, I am aware that no colored man holds the position of keeper in the life-saving service, and yet such as our surfmen are found to be among the best on the coast of North Carolina. I am fully convinced that the interests of the life-saving service here, in point of efficiency, will be greatly advanced by the appointment of this man to the keepership of Station Number 17. Etheridge was the first African-American to hold the rank of keeper of a life-saving station. This meant that, under the racial standards of the times, the entire crew under his command would have to be black. Although other black men had served as surfmen at Pea Island and other stations, the Pea Island station came to be manned entirely by a black keeper and crew. The other life-saving stations in North Carolina, as well as throughout the nation, would be manned and run by whites. It was five months after Etheridge took charge that arsonists burned the station to the ground, and he and his men had to rebuild it. Etheridge served as the keeper at Pea Island for 20 years. In January of 1900, as Orville and Wilbur Wright were planning their voyage to Kitty Hawk to experiment with human flight, Etheridge, at the age of 58, fell ill and died at the station. Pea Island continued to be manned by an all-black crew throughout the Second World War. The station was decommissioned in 1947. One of the last surviving surfmen to serve at the station, William Charles Bowser, died at age 91 on June 28, 2006. Herbert Collins, who served in the 1940s and put the locks on the station for the last time, died Sunday, March 14, 2010. In 1996, the Coast Guard awarded the Gold Life-Saving Medal posthumously to the keeper and crew of the Pea Island Station for the rescue of the people of the E.S. Newman. Etheridge and his family are buried at the Pea Island Life-Saving Station Memorial on the grounds of the North Carolina Aquarium on Roanoke Island. The 110-foot Coast Guard cutter Richard Etheridge was commissioned for use by the U.S. Coast Guard in 2011 in his honor. All along the coasts of the United States and on the Great Lakes, the life-saving service produced scores of heroes throughout the latter half of the 19th century and well into the 20th century. 
We can't acknowledge them all, and their deeds will fill volumes, but we can provide some names and stories here which we hope you'll enjoy. First up is Dunbar John Davis, who was the keeper at the Cape Fear Station in North Carolina and was later transferred to the Oak Station in 1892. Davis is known for over 50 rescues at sea, but is most famous for his daring rescue during a hurricane in 1893. In August of that year, the Sea Islands hurricane hit the Georgia, South Carolina, and North Carolina coasts. By modern standards, it would have been a Category 3 with sustained wind speeds of 120 miles per hour. However, the hurricane had an unusually low pressure at 931 millibars, making it one of the most powerful storms to ever hit the east coast of the U.S. Davis, who was at Oak Island Station at that time, gathered his few crewmen and set off. Braving the storm and the treacherous waters of the graveyard of the Atlantic, he and his crew rescued all crew members aboard four ships, the Three Sisters, the Kate Kefour, the Wonstro, and the Enchantress. Dunbar John Davis's final resting place is the old Morse Cemetery in a quiet corner of Southport. There, a row of simple granite tombstones marks the births and deaths of most of the Davis family. Standing the tallest, however, is that of Dunbar Davis. There are many books out there that tell of the many rescues that Davis had over his long career. Then there's Joshua James, an American sea captain and a U.S. life-saving station keeper. He was a famous and celebrated commander of civilian life-saving crews in the 19th century, credited with saving over 500 lives, beginning at the age of about 15, when he first associated himself with the Massachusetts Humane Society, until his death at the age of 75, while on duty with the United States Life-Saving Service. During his lifetime, he was honored with the highest medals of the Humane Society and the United States. His talents for life-saving were shared with his family. His father, mother, brothers, wife, and son were also lifesavers in their own right. On April 3, 1837, at the age of 10, Joshua witnessed a pivotal event in his life. He was an eyewitness to the death of his mother and a baby sister in the shipwreck and sinking of the schooner Hepzibah in Hull Gut, only a half mile from Safe Harbor. Mrs. Esther James was returning from a visit to Boston in the Hepzibah, a paving stone hauling vessel owned by her son, his brother, Rainier James. As they were passing through the treacherous hull gut, a sudden squall threw the vessel on her beam. The Hepzibah filled and sank before Mrs. James and her baby, who were in the cabin, could be rescued. This event was no doubt influential in shaping Joshua's life. His older sister by five years, Catherine, took over raising the family after the death of their mother. At 15, Joshua began to go to sea with his father and his elder brothers, Rainier and Samuel, and he soon became an expert navigator. His life-saving activities began on December 17, 1841. Five years after the death of his mother and sister, Joshua James leaped aboard a surf boat manned by volunteers from the local chapter of the Massachusetts Humane Society at Hull and headed toward the ship Mohawk, which was being hammered shapeless off Allerton Beach at Harding's Ledge. By 1886, he was involved in so many rescues that the Humane Society struck a special silver medal for brave and faithful service of more than 40 years. The report read, During this time... He assisted in saving over 100 lives. 
However, many records of his early rescues were lost when the archives of the Massachusetts Humane Society were destroyed in the Great Boston Fire of 1872. The Hurricane of 88 came in the guise of a northeast gale and snowstorm accompanied by extremely high tides, and 100-mile-per-hour winds created tremendous surf conditions. The snow and sleet in the early part of the storm gave way to rain. Early in the day of November 25th, 1888, Captain James and a few hardy beachmen climbed to the top of Telegraph Hill, where through nearly blinding snow and wind, they observed five schooners and one coal barge anchored off an area southeast of Boston called Nantasket, attempting to ride out the storm. With the intensity of the storm growing and sensing that it was only a matter of time before some of the ships at anchor yielded to the storm, Captain James notified his volunteers to be ready for service and at about two o'clock ordered patrols all along the ocean shore. The beach patrols had hardly begun when the schooner Cox and Green was discovered broadside to the beach. When Captain James judged the seas too heavy to risk launching a rescue boat, the beach apparatus was called upon. With the assistance of local residents, Captain James and his men rescued the entire crew by rigging a breeches buoy to the stricken schooner. This was to be the first rescue of an extraordinary 36 hours during which 28 whole volunteers would work in five crews to save 29 lives along the town's shores. No sooner than the last crewman from the Cox and Green was safely ashore, the schooner Gertrude Abbott had struck some rocks about one-eighth of a mile to the east of the Cox and Green and was too far out to reach with the line and breeches buoy. Because night was approaching, the incoming tide was very high and the storm increasing in fury. And Captain James decided the best course was to wait until low tide the next day. He ordered the surf boat R.B. Forb brought on the beach abreast of the Gertrude Abbott and a bonfire lit on a bluff so the stricken vessel could be kept in view. During the evening, weather and sea conditions deteriorated so much that between 8 p.m. and 9 p.m., the crew chose to row out to the Grutrude Abbott during the night. Knowing that the conditions were extremely dangerous, Captain James told the men that only volunteers would be taken for this rescue attempt, and all the men volunteered. They launched the surfboat R.B. Forb through the breaking waves and rowed through the frozen water and breaking waves and rowed to the wrecked Gertrude Abbott with two of the crew bailing constantly to keep the boat from swamping. After desperate rowing, the RB4 maneuvered under the ship's bow and a line was heaved from the surf boat to the schooner, and as the smaller craft was lifted by the cresting waves, the eight sailors leaped one by one from the rigging into the surf boat. With 17 men aboard, they began the hazardous return journey to shore. Between rescuers and survivors, the RB4 was overcrowded, leaving little room to work the oars. The overcrowding also made the boat even more difficult to manage. Within 200 yards of the beach, it struck a rock, rolled one gunnel deep underwater, and began taking on seawater. The occupants quickly shifted their position and succeeded in righting the boat. One surfman was washed out of the boat by a wave, but was reclaimed by his comrades before the sea carried him away. The surfboat was buffeted along at the mercy of the waves and struck rocks a number of times. With most of the oars now lost or broken, the men managed with the few oars left to steer the RB4 toward the shore so that the waves might push her in. 
Captain James admonished everyone to stick to the boat as long as possible. Finally, near shore, the RB Ford was thrown upon some hidden rocks and completely wrecked. The occupants promptly jumped out and scrambled to the shore and safety. The schooner's crew were immediately taken to a neighboring house and cared for. For the rescue that Captain James himself called miraculous, all nine surfmen were awarded the Treasury Department's highest medal. Because the storm continued, Captain James ordered the surfmen to maintain a patrol along the beach to watch for more wrecks. At 3 a.m., word came of a third wreck of the schooner Bertha F. Walker. This time the vessel had sunk and seven crewmen were stranded in her rigging. As the surfboat R.B. Forb had been wrecked in the rescue of the Gertrude Abbott, volunteers had to drag a second surfboat, the Robert G. Shaw, four miles overland with the help of horses to the site of the wreck. At dawn, James and the rescuers were able to launch the second boat from the protected launch at Pemberton Point, but faced a six-and-a-half-mile row in difficult seas to reach the Bertha F. Walker and save the seven men in her rigging, who were in danger of perishing of exposure. Just as they landed ashore with the seven men from the Bertha F. Walker, word came of two more shipwrecks, the H.C. Higginson and the Maddie E. Eaton. In addition to Joshua and his crew of the Massachusetts Humane Society, the crew of the U.S. Life-Saving Service Station at North Situate and Cohasset had also gone to the rescue of the H.C. Higginson. Captain James and his volunteers had to pull their beach cart with rescue equipment nine miles overland through snow and slush to get to the wreck site. Efforts to fire lines out to the H.C. Higgins failed due to debris fouling the lines and the Cohasset and Situate crews left the wreck site, so it was necessary to launch the untested surfboat, the Nantasket. The rescue was extremely dangerous because the waves were breaking around the wrecked H.C. Higginson. Captain James took the Nantasket out twice. The first attempt failed after 45 minutes of rowing when the boat hit rocks that knocked two holes in it, making it necessary to return to shore to make temporary repairs using lead patches. On the second attempt, the Nantasket was rowed close enough to the schooner for the men to throw a line on board the H.C. Higginson. The first sailor to be rescued was in the mizzen rigging. He came cautiously down the shrouds, tied the line around his body, leaped down the shrouds, leaped overboard into the sea, and was hauled into the surfboat. Four other sailors in the fore rigging, exhausted from their long exposure, had to work their way with great difficulty into the main rigging. There they fastened lines to themselves and in turn jumped into the breaking waters and were hauled one by one into the Nantasket. Once in the surfboat, they were taken safely to the shore where the half-starved and half-frozen men were quickly conveyed in carriages to the home of selectman David O. Wade of Hull. Not all of the crew of the H.C. Higginson were so fortunate. Three lost their lives, the captain and one sailor were washed overboard in the night, and a third man died in the rigging, frozen to death. By the time they were able to reach the site of the Maddie E. Eaton, the wreck had come up so far on the shore that her crew was able to get off on their own. The brigantine Alice was abandoned at sea, but late on the 26th, the vessel had come ashore. Two salvers had gone aboard and needed to be rescued when their dory was swept away. Captain James and his crew 
took the would-be salvers off the wrecked Alice. The Alice was the last rescue of the hurricane of 1888. For his work at the scene of six wrecks during a two-day period and rescuing 29 people, Joshua James was awarded gold medals by both the Massachusetts Humane Society and the U.S. Life-Saving Service. James' United States Gold Life-Saving Medal is now in the collection of the United States Coast Guard Museum at the U.S. Coast Guard Academy in New London, Connecticut. The 88 storm led to the construction of the Point Allerton U.S. Life-Saving Station one year later in 1889. Ten years later, Joshua James, having been busy all that time saving lives, was involved in another legendary life-saving ordeal during the hurricane of 1898. The storm started quietly on the evening of the 26th of November, 1898, with a light but strengthening wind. Within hours, the winds had grown to hurricane proportions and were creating havoc all along the coast. The winds raged all through the night of the 26th, all day on the 27th, and did not subside until the 28th. Some 36 hours after the storm had started, winds were clocked at up to 72 miles per hour in Boston and were probably even stronger along the coast to the southeast on Cape Cod. At about 3 a.m., surfman Fernando Bierce, who was on patrol, spotted a schooner about a quarter mile from land directly in front of the station. With the surf pounding hard and the wind blowing strong, it was decided against launching the surfboat. Around 6.30 a.m., the Henry R. Tilton had swept westward and was now within range of the Lyle gun. Captain James' first two shots were unsuccessful, but the third shot landed within reach of the crew on board who quickly secured the whip line to the foremast 20 feet above the deck. After bringing the first sailor ashore, the rescuers realized that the Henry R. Tilton was still drifting toward shore. After each transfer of a crewman from ship to shore, the rescuers had to reset the lines. The men handling the lines had to wade out into the water and were standing dangerously close to the breaking waves. From time to time, the sea would engulf the men and equipment. It took over three hours with a mixed crew of U.S. life-saving men and Humane Society volunteers to bring all seven crew members of the Henry R. Tilton to safety. Back at the Point Allerton station, Louisa James and the wives of the other surfmen had lit fire in the station stove, laid out blankets, hot drinks, and cared for the surviving crew of the Henry R. Tilton. After enduring 15 hours of riding out the storm, the crew could finally feel safe. At about the time Captain James and his crew completed their rescue of the Henry R. Tilton, word came that Coal Barge No. 1 of the Consolidated Coal Company was coming ashore about three-quarters of a mile west of their location on Toddy Rocks. The storm had blown down telephone, telegraph, and electrical lines in front of the Point Allerton Station, making it impossible to drag out the station's second beach rescue apparatus. Joshua James conferred with his son, Osceola James, who was captain of the whole chapter of the Massachusetts Humane Society on the best course of action. The two agreed that Osceola would send some of his men to Massachusetts Humane Society Station 18 to retrieve the hunt gun stored there, and Osceola would rent some horses to bring the rest of the equipment. The rest of the men went to the wreck site. At about 11 p.m., the two crews reached the wreck site and set up the Humane Society's beach apparatus. While they were firing shots from the hunt gun, they realized that coal barge number one was about to break up. Both keepers called for volunteers to wade out into the surf. 
the volunteers tied lines to their waists and walked out amidst debris to get as close to the vessel as possible. While they were wading out to the stranded barge, the pilot house broke free from the vessel and rode the waves toward the shore. Close to shore, the waves slammed the pilot house to pieces, tossing its passengers into the surf. The volunteers already in the water rushed to grab the survivors before the rip current could drag them away. With the surfmen holding on to the sailors, they waited for waves to carry them to a point on the beach where they could scramble to safety. All this happening on the 28th of November in near freezing water. On the morning of the 27th, Captain James, using his spyglass, spotted a predetermined distress signal at Boston Light on Little Brewster Island. The U.S. life-saving crew and four volunteers launched the Humane Society surf boat 17, called Boston Herald, from Stony Beach. En route, Captain James spotted the tug Ariel and arranged to be towed as close as possible to Great Brewster Island. After being brought as close as they could to the island, the surfmen rowed the Boston Herald through the breaking surf and came alongside the schooner Calvin F. Baker. Five survivors were retrieved. At 3 a.m. on the 26th, the Calvin F. Baker had run aground on the island and remaining eight crew members were forced into the bow rigging. They would remain in the rigging for the next 30 hours. During that time, the first mate and second mate could not hold on any longer and fell into the water and drowned. The steward froze to death, standing in place. His body was carried down to the surf boat by the rescuers. After rowing the Boston Herald back to the breaking surf and to Stony Beach, the survivors of the Calvin F. Baker warmed themselves in front of the fire with 14 other lucky survivors at the Point Allerton station. Houses were blown over and washed away all along the coast from Cape Cod to Portland, Maine in that storm. The coastline was littered with the wrecks and wreckage of dozens of vessels, large and small, smashed or sunk by the fierce winds and seas. In Provincetown Harbor alone, over 30 vessels had been blown ashore or sunk. Damage along Boston's south shore and Cape Cod was probably the worst. Telegraph lines were brought down, railways washed out, and even the low scrub trees of Cape Cod were blown away. In Situate, the coastline was permanently altered when mountainous waves cut a new inlet from the sea to the North River, closed the old river mouth, and reversed the flow of part of the river. As with the hurricane of 88, there were numerous brave rescues in an extraordinary 36 hours, during which the crew of the Point Allerton Station and volunteers from Hull would save 41 lives along the town's shores. From 1841 to 1901, Joshua James had been involved in over 100 different life-saving situations, saving over 540 lives. The following year, 1902, at age 62, James had passed all of the physical examinations with no difficulty, and now in 1901, 11 years later, and at age 73, he repeated the act. The dramatic death of Joshua James occurred on March 19th, 1902. Two days earlier, all but one of the Monomoy Point Life Saving Station crew perished in a rescue attempt, drowned by the panicked victims of a shipwreck they were attempting to save. The tragedy affected Joshua deeply and convinced him of the need for even more rigid training of his own crew. At 7 o'clock on the morning of March 19th, with a northeast gale blowing, 
James called his crew for a drill and to test a new self-bailing, self-writing surfboat. For more than an hour, the 75-year-old man maneuvered the boat through the boisterous sea. He was pleased with the performance of the boat and the crew. Upon grounding the boat, he sprang into the wet sand, glanced at the sea, and stated, The tide is ebbing, and then fell dead on the beach from a heart attack. Joshua was buried with a lifeboat for a coffin. A second lifeboat made of flowers was placed on his grave. His tombstone bears the Massachusetts Humane Society seal and a biblical inscription from John fifteen thirteen. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. The superintendent of the U.S. Life Saving Service, Sumner Increase Kimball, said of him, Here and there may be found men in all walks of life who neither wonder nor care how much or how little the world thinks of them. They pursue life's pathway, doing their appointed tasks without ostentation, loving their work for the work's sake, content to live and do in the present, rather than look for the uncertain rewards of the future. To them, notoriety, distinction, or even fame, acts neither as a spur nor a check to endeavor, yet they are really among the foremost of those who do the world's work. Joshua James was one of these. James is honored every year at his gravesite on May 23rd, Joshua James Day, by the Hull Life-Saving Museum at the former Point Allerton Life-Saving Station. The U.S. Coast Guard Cutter James, the fifth national security cutter, was named in honor of Joshua James's life and dedication to saving lives. Thanks for joining us with this episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. These are little-known stories that deserve to be told and shared, and we hope you enjoyed them. Please do send us a kind review at Apple Podcast app or castbox.fm for you Android listeners. And if you haven't become a show patron yet, we would really appreciate your support at patreon.com forward slash 1001storiesnetwork. Our show friends pledge a few dollars each month to help us out. They receive special episodes in return. I know that only a few people take the time to make this kind of a pledge, but I'll tell you this, those people are special, and it's their way of thanking us for a job well done. We'll be back next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time with a brand new story. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and we'll see you then.